Hey, this is Dave Pryor for Drunken PM Radio. If you're checking out this podcast, you're probably listening on projectmanagement.com. I'd like to thank them once again for being a sponsor of the podcast. And I would also like to thank James Gifford for taking time out of his day and putting up with all the technical issues we've had over the past half an hour. So James, thank you for, for making some space for this. That's a pleasure to be here, Dave. And thank you for recording it. So if this doesn't work, it's totally his fault because all my tools failed already. So, um, so no pressure. <laughs> so James is at a new gig. So and he's just back from DC. He just spoke at Agile DC. But before we get into the main stuff, James, do you want to talk about your new job? Yeah. So um, so I had the opportunity to come work for you know a medium sized company that's actually a product company. So uh, spent a lot of time in the industry kind of rattling around the financial industry and big, large banks, you know, the fortune 100 down. And, um, you know, it's being able to come to an actual product company that's shipping products as opposed to having a tangible product that behind the scenes is clubbed together with some weird architecture. Um, looking at that actual opportunity and getting to experience agile from that lens, um, it was a great opportunity and it they're like a year in. So it's like very foundational, like really having a chance to kind of influence the direction of uh, where things are going. So that's one of the way you're talking about this. It, it reminds me of one of the things that it seems to keep coming up is, and I don't, I don't know if it's that the industry is changing or just the people I'm talking to are at a different point in their career. But most of the people I know when they take a job now, it's not just like the, Oh my God, I need a job, but they want a laboratory a place where they can run experiments and test new things and learn different stuff. I mean, is that kind of what's going on with you when you, when you think about a place to work? Yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely want the ability to experiment. I want there to be some level of culture at that organization that's ready to kind of start uh, experimenting or look at a problem a different way. Um, and yeah, a lot of times, you know, when you're, when you're, especially in an agile coaching role, um, there's a lot of smells that like when you talk to these people and uh, you're trying to get hired, like I literally have like this 15 point list of things. That, <laughs> I could fix that and that and that. <laughs> that I run through that, you know, that actually turn into like, well, they're masking that. They're going to give you the answer to kind of entice you. But at the end of the day, it turns out to, yeah, that place is uh, probably hosed and it's going to be a bad environment and it's going to be like serious command and control um, not actually ready for an agile mindset shift or, um, they're not going to actually care about the people. And, and if at the core value, if you're actually coaching and you're, you're believing in the manifesto, all of it was centered around, you know, making the lives better for the people that are actually delivering products and software, uh, or projects is, is littered with. So I start to look for those smells in, in those organizations. Uh, and that's kind of what, that's how I, that's my litmus test. So this place passed the litmus test. They actually have a, they have a culture ready. <laughs> it smells to bad enough, but not too bad. It's not bad. It's like they're ready for change. They have some wonky ideas. But, okay. But at the same time, those are things that will, you know, I can tell them they're going to fail now. But as we go through and iterate and deliver, we're going to, we'll be able to see it fail firsthand. And they'll be able to learn from that. And they're ready to learn. That's the thing is, is your organization ready to learn or are they, you know, doing it because the CIO was talking to his buddy at the golf course and we're now yeah. doing agile because of his buddies doing agile. 
So before we get to the main topic, because just because of the way you talked about this, I want to ask you a question. We may or may not edit this out, but um, I've been in, in that kind of situation where I'm looking at something before I actually get in the door, and I feel like I have a pretty decent sense of some of the issues, like some of the smells, right? Maybe some indicate they're open to change. Maybe some indicate, well, you're just not seeing that clearly. But when you walk in the door from a coaching perspective, how do you get yourself back to that kind of child mindset of seeing everything for the first time and not letting the baggage of your history drive your response to what they're doing? So I, every engagement, I, I come into it. I mean, you do develop some preconceived notions, um, but those are the first things that I, I go and I validate. I'd sadly put together an experiment or an experiment canvas. I do everything. Why is that sad? I think uh, that's awesome. Like people are just like, dude, you and the canvases. I'm like the canvas guy. I've got a, the canvases are I great. I canvases out everywhere I go, but I, I actually, so I, I'll get that list of preconceived notions. I'll actually put them all into various canvases and start to kind of go through and say, how am I going to validate this? What, who in the organization do I need to kind of talk to, to kind of, start putting this, this all together. And so if the, if my preconceived notions are there, then if I don't, if I'm not equipped to take care of it, um, I'm going to hit the, I'm going to hit my community. Uh, we have, we have a great, great online community to hit up, but I'm going to hit up my community of coaches networks and, and try to figure out how the best way to attack that. And some of the, uh, you know, unfortunately I've lost some of my development chops, but you know, when it starts getting into real like crazy technical, like branching strategies and things like that, it's, um, I know kind of what's good, but I go back and, uh, pull up my friends and, and rely on that network. Okay. So you're, so from, I mean, you're talking about coding. I, I always think of this more in terms of the social aspect of it, but do you think that to be effective, somebody has to have the technical depth? No, I think that they have to be technically savvy enough to, generally understand some basic domain like hey you know this a web front end is potentially connected to uh or you know multiple web front ends are connected to a load balancer to kind of push traffic to different places like common kind of like basic high level architecture stuff so you don't get totally lost um i've worked with a lot of coaches and we've had a lot of success that weren't actually technical in nature and they were more focused on change management soft skills changing behaviors and those have been the most successful ones and we've gone to third party people that are technical so if i need a guy to sit shoulder to shoulder with a developer and actually do pair programming with them I would rather go find like an Amitai Slyer um, or some of the other people that I know in the industry and bring them in and have them do that. I can I can teach you about it on paper. I understand the concepts of it and why it's valuable and why XP put it in there um, because I, I love history. I love knowledge. But for me to physically write JavaScript or Java or .NET at this point, it's five years removed, um, we're probably going to bring down your production. <laughs> If we'd push it. Well, it's a way of testing the robustness of what they put together. All right. So thank you for letting me ask that question. Um, one more thing before we get into the main topic. Let's talk about the uprising. Because if, if people aren't familiar with you yet, personally, they should at least by now have heard of the Agile Uprising. So do you want to 
kind of explain what that is and what you what you guys do? Yeah. So if if you if you're not familiar with the Agile Uprising, um, we're an online community group, and you can find us at uh, the the actual discussion board uh, where a lot of the community discussions happen at uh, coalition.agileuprising.com. Um, we started it um, just over a year ago. So coming out of well, actually a year and a half ago now. But coming out of the Heart of Agile conference that was held in in Pittsburgh, we kind of got a bunch of together people together in a, in a, in the Philly area, thinking that hey, we need to replace the meetup groups in Philly, um, and so we started like this little online community in Slack, and then the conversations that were just happening in that thing were just so like impactful and like game changing to like even my coaching strategies that we were like, we can't keep this all on all this magic in a bottle. So we started up the coalition. We made it public. Um, we just celebrated the first year of the podcast. So we have, um, we're about 53 episodes into the podcast. Uh, we've been trying to do various activities and events uh, tailored towards the community. So um, we, right when we first started it up, we did a, we interviewed 14 of the original 17 signers. Um, yeah, and a, I, but I want to interrupt you and say, if you haven't listened to this stuff, you definitely should, because it is amazing. So Sorry. no, 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 absolutely. It was that absolutely was the most impactful, uh, thing that I've done with my agile career in the, in the last, since 2010, like getting to sit down to talk to those guys and understand where they were coming from back then what they've been kind of doing now and, and where they see the industry going is it's just completely insightful. And that content, if you're, if you're into the actually truly into agile and to want to get deep into that, into the manifesto, like the thought process behind that, how they emulate those values today, like it's just, it's crazy. And it, it, it kind of a lot of, what sort of spurred on the the, to the topic we're actually going to discuss kind of came out of listening to that and then going out to try to, to do some experiments. So, I mean, we have content, we have a lot of content around that. Uh, we're still struggling to put Lena Palooza together, but we're doing a similar activity with a lot of the lean folks. We're getting ready to start a book club. Um, so a few of the people on the board and a couple of the people actually from the coalition are, are reading uh, Vasco Duarte's uh, No Estimates. So we're going to actually get Vasco on. We're going to do a podcast with him. And then we're actually going to have uh, get together four people to discuss actually various chapters of the book and kind of tell people what value we got out of it. Um, not necessarily give like read, read, read the book like an audio book, but at least have the discussion around it. So if they're like looking for a book, um, they can go actually go pick it up. And then we're going to have Vasco Duarte back on to kind of um, go through our feedback. So we'll, we'll recap our feedback, the discussions uh, around the book, and then get his opinion on, on our thoughts. Uh, just to kind of round out that two-way conversation was, here's his book. Okay. Here's him introducing it. Here's our feedback to you, Vasco, uh, on on what we thought about the book and what value we got out of it. So that if he goes, so if if somebody wanted to participate, can they still get into this, or is this like a closed thing right now? Um, we're 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 locked in on the on the folks for this one, but we are going to do um, David Bernstein's uh, book on um, legacy refactoring. Okay, it probably be the next one. Um, if somebody wants to suggest a book. 
they can feel free to email me, uh, reach out to me. And, um, I mean, I, you can always find me on Twitter at, at Scramando. You can DM me, hit me up publicly. I don't care. Um, and then my email is james.gifford at scramando.com. Um, you're more than willing, welcome to reach out to us and, and, and ask to get involved, or you could jump on the coalition, um, and sign up for that. And I'm on there at, at Scramando. So we're, <laughs> there's a, there's a theme there, but, um, yeah. So, so I, I, I mean, want to say to people, like, if you're not part of this community, it is it is an insane resource, and it has come together so fast. And the amount of, of content that these guys generate makes me ashamed. And I'm just – every time I see it, I'm like, god damn it. Like, there's another thing they posted, something else that's really awesome. But it's just – there's so much value that you guys are bringing, and it's all driven by passion. It's not like you're trying to make a ton of money off of it, which is, I think, one of the most – one of the coolest things about it. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, all right. So let's talk about the main reason we're doing this podcast. So you, you've been talking a lot about metrics we're going to let that one go because that's going to come up somewhere else. We're going to talk about descaling. So in the enterprise, it's been in the water a long time. Things have been glomming onto it. It's covered with scales. How are we going to get them off, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So <laughs> I, I've, been, I've, been shop- <laughs> I've been shopping this talk around, um, around, the, around the conference circuit. Uh, when, I, when we had originally released it, I had – called it value stream containers. Uh, and ironically, Dean released for safe four O like right at the same time. And he introduced the concept of the value stream then. So, um, we've been talking about, we've been changing the, the dynamic now to talking about descaling enterprises, uh, instead of scaling agility. Okay. And so, so I just want to just couches for folks that are maybe not already familiar with the whole thing. So when you talk about Dean, you're talking about Dean Leffingwell, who does Scaled Agile Framework. And where right. most of the Agile space for the last two years has been running headlong at the cliff of, oh, my God, we can't make Scrum work on a small team. We better scale this. Or as Chet would say, you're going to scale the inability to deliver code. Um, there are lots of organizations that do have to make it work at an enterprise and global level. And there are a number of popular techniques and a lot of organizations have been trying to figure out how to make this work. And it is a fairly complicated thing. Um, and you're arguing against doing that. I'm, I'm arguing to kind of change the dynamic of how we look at and structure companies. Um, so if you look at traditional organization or enterprises, a lot of these enterprises have grown through the acquisition and swallowing up of smaller companies or buying companies for technologies and to manage the sheer scale of that they put in some gigantic hierarchy that looks and to navigate that hierarchy it's a lot of like shoots and ladders um and out of that well and they're all based in the frederick taylor waterfall approach to work anyway exactly and so then you have all of these traditional silos that kind of just start popping up. And so now for me, so I can remember back in the time when I was working for um, a large credit card company and I, I ironically, I was doing graphic design and, and print buying. So I was purchasing junk mail to send you with a credit card offer. Um, but so for me to get something through from the marketer, the marketer has an idea till the time I could send it to the company to have it printed, there were 85 handoffs across 
15 different silos and every single one of those silos had their piece and their rules and their guidelines and their queue. And it was just all of this extraneous process that was keeping us from moving fast. And that whole entire process. So from the time the marketer had an idea to the time it could get printed yeah, was 12 weeks. Okay. So that's a long, that's a long time. That's yeah. a long time to get you a marketing offer in the mail. And what they really didn't look at, and, and that's just because of the, the nature of the organization and how it was structured. Well, and they're also not doing like some kind of lean approach to checking the the the, the queue time from like inception of the idea to realization of it, right? Exactly. And nobody really cared about that because everybody was in their empire and they wanted to control their empire. And, you know, well, if I need, we need more bodies. And that was the, always the yeah. answer was, I need to grow my empire. And that's how we'll solve the throughput issues within the organization. And that, that never ended up being the, the way to do it. So, uh, you know, I recently launched a, a startup with my friend, Mike McCalla called Lean Agile Intelligence. It's, a, it's an online agile assessment product. Um, so between doing that and actually like three of us basically working on this product, having to be basically the marketer, the developer, the the tester, the, you know, we, we working together and pretty much wearing any one of our own hats to just get stuff done. Um, and then the manifesto series, uh, talking to, uh, John Kern who graciously provided us the, his original notes from snowbird. Like we have, and they're freely available to anybody. And that's on the, the, the coalition yeah. site. But the, the irony of that is that, if you look at his notes, they were talking about business agility in 2001 at Snowbird. And it was about reducing handoffs, reducing, um, you know, basically bringing everybody into the development process that needed to be there. So, you know, getting that got me thinking um, around, all right, well, then, and, and all their and all the things that they talk about were building small teams around projects and every single one of them, that's pretty much what they, they talked about. They weren't talking about scaling it. So I started looking at startups and I started looking at those notes um, and I started kind of poking around the internet, trying to figure out like, why are there all these silos? Why are, uh, why are all these monolithic applications created the way they were? And, you know, you come across Conway's law, which basically talks about, um, any organization that designs a system will produce a design whose structure is a copy of its organization's communication structure or even even just structure. So now we've got we've got all these organizations building these big monolithic applications basically around their silos. Okay. And now I've and now I've got to start integrating. We've got to figure out how to integrate. And these guys are on a different schedule and they're on a different schedule. So they're not focused on on value. They're not focused on what the Well, they're not the, focused on it demand. across the enterprise. They're only focused on it within their channel. And then so now you have this large enterprise and enterprise releases and people that now need to stitch all this stuff together to make it collaborate. Now, do you, I, I want to pause you for a second. Do you think that... Or have you ever seen an example of back, you know, when that's all going on, that the organization would appoint a person or a department whose job it was to create flow through the whole system? Do, and do you think that would have been possible? Um, I, I think it's possible. I've never seen an organization do it. And so if we're trying to actually get to that, continue, be able to, you know, 
continuous delivery of value to our customers um, or be able to ship every time that our, our customers are ready for change, um, you're, it's going to be hard to actually accomplish that in the, in the actual true enterprise. So I started trying to research companies um, to like start validating this hypothesis that we need to, we, we should be trying to align our organizations around products or um, some type of customer value. Um, and so when I, and, and the reason why I say that is, is, is that's, that's sort of what the manifesto was kind of talking about is it was small projects around delivering valuable working software to a customer. And a lot of those, in a lot of those days, it was consulting companies or third-party development shops building products for, um, you know, a, a bank because there weren't a lot of internal IT groups to build software like that. It so it was it was in the '90s. It was third-party companies building software products for other people to do jobs. So, kind of getting back to the idea of product and value, um, if we would turn around and design our organizations around value or products. So the the place here is set up really well for products. We have defined products um, that we can actually deliver on. Um, we'll eventually work to create a simpler way of connecting them together. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. But when we were trying to look at this from a, we, we just recently went through a exercise at um, a large financial institution and where we ended up landing was to figure out what our customer, our, our, your value at a, at a, from a credit card standpoint, you know, your credit card's a tangible good, but it doesn't work without the 50 to 60 applications that, that, um, ultimately live behind that. Right. And so what we did was we, we looked at that organization and they're like, well, our customer touches rewards. We need to make sure that rewards has continuity through the entire organization or through the entire life cycle of the experience. And I was like, well, we could potentially organize these, this work around um, basically what we were calling them customer journeys. So I had I had proposed it with a different name, the the you know the business unit came back with customer journeys, and that and that's that's where we ended up. But what we ended up doing was we looked at we ended up going through an entire exercise to shift um, development teams to focusing on a value stream as opposed to um, an application. So we went and realigned the entire organization around focusing on delivering value for a customer, and we had a series of workshops where we actually went and identified all the business capabilities, um, where all those lived in all the various apps. Uh, and then we figured out what all the skills were, we needed to kind of do that. Um, and then we actually created cross-functional teams based upon the tech stack. And now you, now the problem is, is that we ran into was the, well, because of all the mergers and acquisitions and, different CIOs and their ideas on tech stacks and all that stuff. We ended up needing teams of like 13 people or bigger sometimes in some cases to, to initially get a pro like get a team developing across the a value stream. Are you suggesting that, I mean, it sounds like you're kind of leaning in this direction. Most organizations, if they're large and they're going to adopt like safe or less or, or, or data, or one of those approaches in some aspects, they're basically saying, I have a problem. Go find me the process I can plug in to fix it. Absolutely. 
And you're saying, it's saying we have a problem. We have to restructure our organization to be able to cope with this better. And, and I, is that- that's essentially what I'm, I'm trying to get at is okay. let's restructure our, our organization and develop around value. So now on a team, if I'm delivering a capability for you to redeem your rewards on your credit card, yeah, and I can redeem my I can redeem that through the IVR, which is a phone. Like you call in and redeem via the phone, via the mobile app, or via the website. I literally have a cross-functional team of people that could deliver that business capabilities change or addition through all channels without ever without ever needing to scale. Um, and essentially, we've cr- started creating more of a domain type architecture around um so basically rewards is its own self-contained kind of area of code and then we use common open apis so that if the you know if your payments if you have some if you can pay with rewards or some type of activity there's open apis between those essentially domains um, or individual applications if you actually get way down into the diagrams they're now starting to develop open APIs. So literally the system can just plug into each other. So if rewards needs to talk to payments, there's an open API and all rewards has to do is go, all right, I can plug into that um, payments. Have you um, looked at either time or cost? Like if you're making this kind of change as opposed to trying to implement safe, let's say, have you done any kind of comparison in terms of how long it takes or how do you measure the success when you're putting it into place? So it 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 took us approximately a year um, and a half to kind of get the first three going and actually work through all of these ideas. Um, since I left there, they're working through the rest of it. So they're probably on about a two-year change. So from going in and implementing a safe or across a large enterprise, you're looking at 18 months to two years. As opposed to, I mean, and and that's top dollar consultants coming from uh, all the certifications. This is putting people all in new roles. This is this is you know all of that stuff. And and the thing, the beauty of this is, you know, we took that a Kanban approach, sort of that mentality of just respect what you do today. Like the yeah, the, start where you are. Just start where you are. I don't I don't need like your product, your program manager, your project manager. Um, you're still going to be doing the same thing, just at a different level. Um, you know, we we did bring in some of the, the. We ended up needing to be able to tie the enterprise together, so we did end up with a pretty big hierarchy of of stories. Uh, like the, the planning onion hierarchically, um, it went from basically a strategic objective to a program. Um, from a program down to a portfolio item and then epics, features, stories. So we still ended up with one of those big, gigantic hierarchical um, stacks. But the reason that it made sense across the enterprise was, is we needed to be able to communicate value. So instead of it being arbitrary goals, we started shifting the, and I talk about this in that metrics talk that you kind of alluded to, but the big, the big shift here was getting people focused on outcomes and business outcomes as opposed to, you know, making shareholders happy. So you're talking about all this stuff and I'm, and I'm thinking I'm being mindful of the audience. So the folks that are going to listen to this are mostly going to be folks in sort of management, middle management, project management, PMO area. 
Um, so try to look at it through that lens when I ask you this question. I can walk into the CTO or the CIO or see whatever's office and I can say, look, we need to make a change and I need X amount of dollars because I'm going to go buy something or I'm going to walk into every part of this company and just twist everybody upside down. How do you, cause that's basically what you're, I mean, I agree with what you're saying. It's a smarter approach, but how do you make that case? It's, it's, going to be easier for me to say, give me money, I'm going to the store, as opposed to I'm going to make us all eat something completely different for the rest of our lives. So when when we walked in, the when we when we actually did this, the the company had already been on a on a two and a half year safe journey, and it basically failed because okay. of a bad implementation. So they didn't want to give up on their dream of agile. And they were kind of ready to go. Yeah. Well, safe didn't work. What are we, what are we going to do? And and they didn't really get into why safe failed, but they didn't really follow it. They didn't implement any of the another discipline. But that could also be because safe is demanding a structure that they're not organized to, right? I mean, they have the same problem exactly. And so they wouldn't adopt to that, and they got a lot of very fed up people, and there was a lot of anger and noise. Um, and when we started the whole process, the, the CIO kind of was, there was no CIO. The, the CIO had been on hiatus for two hours or for the last two years, they had, they had just left. So there wasn't really anybody to kind of stop us. Now to talk, talk people into being able to just say, we need to think more like a startup. Um, when we, when I had talked to this, when I had talked about this with, with uh, a senior leader of a company that was starting to be disrupted by a startup, it was an easier conversation because they had to react because they were being disrupted. And this was, this type of framework would make sense to them. This, this kind of plan of designing their organization around value. So I want to, I want to point this, make this point in case anybody just missed it. So you just described two different leverage points where this people might be more open to this. The first one being they've already tried the scaling thing and it didn't work, but they still want the promise of what it was supposed to provide. The reason it didn't work was probably a lack of discipline and the fact that this is a problem they were going to have to fix at one point, one way or another. The other kind of leverage point that you mentioned would be somebody's already drinking their milkshake. So they're already in a danger zone. They're being threatened. They need a way to respond. Right. Absolutely. I'm trying to, I'm, what I'm trying to do is to give the folks that are going to like the, the main audience of the podcast, I want them to have something where they can say, okay, I can go back and I can say, look, this is happening. Let's, let's give James a call. Maybe we should talk about this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I totally get it. But it's going to take two years. It's going to be difficult along the way. Um, how are you measuring progress as you're going through it? Or how did you do that? So when we took a program, a large initiative, something that the company wanted to deliver, we started changing the dynamic to talking about actual business outcomes. So there's a there's a John F. Kennedy quote that basically, when they started the space race, and I don't have it right in front of me, but I, I give it in it. When I talk about business outcomes, I talk about it. But basically, he said, "We, I believe, by the end of this decade, we should put a man on the moon and bring him back and safely. return him safely." Yeah. So like that is an act. That is a statement of out. Like I here's an Vision outcome. Statement. Yeah, this is an yeah. outcome that we need to hit, 
And the amount of crazy science and everything to do that actually came together, we accomplished it. We set the business down and we said, look, for you to spend money. So one of the other dichotomies that we changed was starting to, to look at budgeting from that perspective. We started saying, look, for you, we, we know that you estimate this. We estimated this program out to be a million dollars and it's going to potentially be um, a year's worth of work. But what do you, what does it look like? What are your outcomes? Like, so how are we going to actually measure this? And you are now accountable to measure this. So if we're going to spend X number of dollars um, to reduce the churn rate on our product, so the loss of customers, we're going to do these three features to retain 35% of the people that we're losing uh, month over month. Well, we're only going to give you enough money to get that first most valuable feature in there and see if one of those or one and a half of those features are going to actually solve that goal. So, and then if, if, and if it's, if it's taking off and it's actually doing what it's going to do, um, we're going to invest more into it. And so we're going to, and then we're going to stop investing in it when it start, stops actually returning. So instead of doing the million dollar death march till I've spent it all, I may only need to spend 400,000 of that because we actually hit the outcomes and we can stop spending. I, I think another way, so for the more traditional minded folks, it's not that there's stage gates, but there are checking points along the way where you're making a go, no go decision. Are we getting enough value out of this to continue? And, or have we got enough value that we're ready to just let this one ride for a while, right? Absolutely. So there's, that reduces the risk for the business in terms of their investment instead of saying, you know, two and a half years of X amount of dollars for a bunch of safe guys, we can kind of check the progress on this and see if the investment's paying off as we flow through it. Absolutely. And if, and we had to end up, we ended up making a couple tweaks to where certain business capabilities felt or fell and various types of, of teams. Um, okay. Because as we started planning, as we started forecasting, as we looked at that roadmap of things that we wanted to do, we were able to shift the market because we had we had looked at how all the applications stacked up, how all of the the enterprise went. Instead of instead of doing that traditional, um, you know, you get the team together for a project, you do the project, you disperse them. And then the next project comes along, you look at the resource pool and you go, oh, all right, we're going to put these 10 people together. We'll grab these guys from QA and then we're back at it. And then, you know, they got to f- feel each other out. We ended up go starting to- forming, storming, norming, get back to performing again. Exactly. And so what we ended up doing is starting to just shift entire teams because we, we knew essentially the entire makeup of the organization and each particular value stream. Uh, or in this case, customer journey. And then we were able to just transplant an entire team. And because they're all, you knew what was over there tech stack wise, what, what the projects potentially would entail, they could spend a little bit of extra time in the beginning ramp up stages with some more of the domain experts, the people that really understood payments. Um, but they, they understood the tech stack. They understood the architecture. They understood what we needed to build because there was a, a common, common way to develop it. But you would just send the entire team. Okay. And then they would just basically have a, a slightly, you, you know, you, you always got to learn your domain. Every project team is going to have to learn that domain anyway. So, But that, they have the efficiencies of working, knowing how to work together. It's going to save time that way. 
Exactly. And so then, so we, we started trying to, to keep from, um, to, from doing that. Now there are some different research now kind of popping up around dynamic reteaming and things like that. that Don't talk about that. Cause let's, let tell everyone, we want them all to think the teams have to stay together. Let that go. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, st- <laughs> I, I'm still in the camp of. Don't salt your own game, man. <laughs> I'm still in the camp of everybody should stay together. As long okay. as they can, unless they start to stagnate, and then because you do, then you need. Yeah, there's a natural point where you need change, but you want to keep them together as long as it makes sense to keep them together, not just change them for the sake of changing. Them. And I have a I have a group of friends that literally have been together for ten years, and they just love like you could never separate that team, and it and it's because they're they're always engaged in cool work, and they like working with each other, so they never hit that stagnation point. That's awesome. Cool. So James, thank you very much, much for this. Um, so one of the things we're going to put out there is if you're listening to this and you want to know more, there's, we can go into this in a lot more depth. So if you're interested in hearing more, please post something as a response and let James and I know that, that you want more and we'll come back and dig into this a lot deeper. We'll talk about some case studies where this is being used in massive organizations um, and we can talk about different roles and things like that. Um, but James, if folks want to get in touch with you, if, if they were enticed enough by this that they want to reach out to you directly, and I know you mentioned it before, but can you go over it again, like the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, so if you want to get in touch with me, you can find me um, on the Agile Uprising Coalition at coalition.agileuprising.com. My username's at Scrimando. You can find me on Twitter at Scrimando. If you actually Google my LinkedIn profile, you can find the the last part of my name in LinkedIn is Scrimando. And uh, you can always email me at uh, james.gifford at scramando.com. Cool. And we want to just mention that folks should stay tuned to the Alliance website and keep focused on you because there's going to be details coming up about the FailCon in April, which is a conference celebrating failure, right? Yep. And we're so we're going to do a conference dedicated to celebrating the failures with Agile. It's kind of one of the things that people don't talk about in our industry. Um, especially for in the consulting space. So um, I know we have some great ind- like leading consulting companies that are actually going to come and share, share even their failures, um, kind of already in the talk. So failing with Agile, it's a reality, and we should celebrate it and learn from it. And, and the gift that it brings. And you're also going to do another Heart of Agile conference this spring. Yeah, probably roughly around the end of April. So I'll, it'll be really busy organizing conferences. Um for me in the, in the next yeah. couple of months. But uh, yeah, it looks like two, two dates in April, um, pretty much the rest of the year. It's, there's so many other events going on uh, conference-wise that April just seems to be it. So it'll be an all-PA conference scene for me. Uh, cool. Well, not too much travel, then. That's good. All right. So, dude, thank you very much for doing this. And, and like I said, folks, if you're listening, please let us know you want more, and we'll definitely do more of these. So cool. Thanks, James. Thanks, Dave.